Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It... Padam Padam. Week two of Kylie Mania. That's my name. I okay. changed it legally. <laughs> I am somewhat surprised that every queer on Twitter is making Padam Padam jokes. It's it's rare that we get a really centralized Kylie Minogue conversation, even among the gays. But um, anyway, I'm Louis Fertel. I'm a big Kylie Minogue fan. <laughs> I think that I was shocked how much it really sort of like took hold of people. And I know that there, you know, there's been some um a grassroots insurgency amongst the Minogers. Sure. You know, um, they, they, you know, there's, sometimes you get a moment. Uh, disco was really a moment because we were all trapped in the house right. and, wish, and wishing we were at a disco. Right. But, you know, like, there'll be a big moment and the Kylie gays are sort of like, they're talking about it, but no one's listening. But this <laughs> week, everybody is talking about this fucking song. People are making memes about it. And honestly... It's great. It sort of ties into what we're talking about this week, right? We're going to discuss the Donna Summer documentary that aired yes. on HBO, amongst other things. But there's a moment in the beginning where they're talking about how Love to Love You Baby wasn't a hit. And it kept ending too soon. And people yes. kept saying, put that back on. And they realized they had to make like a 17, 20-minute version. And then it was a fucking hit and it sold a million copies, right? And I feel mm-hmm. like this is that song because it's on there's no fucking chorus it's one of those like two minute songs as soon as it ends you have to play it again because you still want to hear the fucking song and then at the end of it i'm just sort of like once i stop playing it on loop for a while i'm just sort of like well that's not really a song i feel the same way i i wish it were a more epic thing and there's plenty of obviously um great kylie remixes so i'm sure we'll get the proper 11 minute version of this but it's just the disease of Old Town Road. Now we have these songs come out that are, you know, a minute 58, like we're Jerry Lee Lewis or Chuck Berry. It's like some <laughs> 50s shit. Um, and for that reason, I mean, I, I, I guess I could just play it five times in a row, but the song is actually diminishing for me as even mm. as a fan. Like, I'm, I'm excited for the rest of the album, but I have to tell you, do you know what I think Kylie Minogue should do? I didn't expect to go down this track early in the episode, but I'm happy we're here. Um, I would like to hear a Kylie cover. And my suggestion is Where My Girl's At by 702, which I just heard yesterday. Picture her singing that. Like, I love, again, we talked about her body language album, which has Mm -hmm. R&B elements to it. When she kind of sinks into a groove like that, to me, that's when Kylie reels me in the most. And I think she would do a song like that really well. Well, listen, I mean, Kylie is always at her best when she is um, discussing the politics of the dance floor. You know, she, so (laughs) wondering where her girls are, would yeah, be right, perfect right for her in there. Because yes. I feel like her top five songs are literally her telling a man, uh, you're not dancing enough, or right. um, or get out of my way because I need to dance, um, or just her talking about, you know what I'm doing? I'm spinning around. It really is all dance-centric <laughs> and 
dancing at or near a man. And I would like to hear maybe one dimension of I I, I brought my posse with me because I don't yeah, think we've no. heard that from her. She's just horny. I but guess, yeah. Not as horny as Jesse Ware because she's literally mostly like, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like, if you don't want to dance, get out of my way because I'm going to dance. She's very much Julianne Moore and Gloria Bell just on the dance floor, twirling by herself, listening to the music. Right. Which is, you know, it gives demented Blue Jasmine <laughs> talking to herself in the park vibes. You know what I mean? Like, who who, who really needs to dance by themselves that much? I mean, um, listen, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you run into Kylie Minogue on the dance floor and she's like whispering about Studio 54 and what she, re- and what she remembers from there. And you're like, ma'am, I just asked what you wanted to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Lost in the music. Um, now, did you wait in line last night for four hours to meet Kylie Minogue at Kylie Wines? No, I was being a responsible striking writer. So I was on the picket line. I was at the Disney lot where is if you're looking for like an idyllic walk as a striker, I really recommend it because there's lots of places to walk. You can put your earphones in. You don't have to talk with like 25 writers about whatever projects you are or aren't working on. Um, that's just for my colleagues out there. But I am a little jealous that my thing is I, I don't drink. So uh, mm. like Car- Kylie sparkling wine doesn't speak to me. And I also have actually met Kylie Minogue before. Ten mm. years ago at the uh, New Now Next Awards, mm. I was on the red carpet. I know you're bedazzled by the glamour I'm bringing right now. <laughs> but I was co-hosting a, an event with Willem of Drag Race fame. In my opinion, still the funniest person ever to be on Drag Race. Uh, chaotic I though, love, I chaotic though Willem, Willem is. I mean, yeah. gave us our best Drag Race adjacent meme, right? With yes. Derek Barry. No one oh. died at Stonewall. Uh, no. Uh, but, <laughs> Someone who actually knows stuff. I just love Willem. But uh, at the New Now Next Awards, we both were talking to each other, and it was a live stream, and we, I, I asked him, I was like, is there any celebrity who, if they come by, you just want to talk to solo, like you're so obsessed with them? And he, I think he said he wanted to talk to Fergie or something. And I said, okay, well, I'm a huge Kylie Minogue stan, so if Kylie Minogue comes by, and I know she won't, she's performing, whatever, I'd like to talk to her. Lo and behold, Kylie Minogue does come by. Willem stays right in frame. He's of course. The, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's running the whole show too. I'm like trying to ask like provocative questions about like the locomotion and the Abbey Road sessions. And did she ever meet little Eva? She never met little Eva, but we all got a picture together and it was very cute. So I still have that. I love that. I love that. Um, I want to say something about the picket lines. Okay. <laughs> all right. Norma Ray. Here we go. Um, <laughs> you call me Norma Nay. Because I don't think I'm ever setting foot on a WGA East picket line again. Do you know they took a photo of me that is one of the worst photos of me that has ever been taken and put it on their Instagram? I feel disgusted. Oh, no. I feel like also the walking path in New York. New York is not an ideal place to be striking, baby. I was okay. at the uh, I was struck at the upfronts in New York, and yeah, the, it was a skinny sidewalk and yeah, nary a bathroom in sight. I came there after you. I met our friend Matt Whitaker. I was doing the walking. There's no bath. It's also like you're just right here. It feels like you're walking. You're walking around a hot dog stand, <laughs> uh, and then because it's New York, you know the 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 crazies come out. There's this man with this like DJ. Um, thing, you know, like with his Venmo up there so you can tip him. And I'm like, sir, I would tip you if you were playing anything besides who let the dogs out (laughs) as she works hard for the money. What the fuck am I supposed to do with that? Uh, Okay, she works hard for the money. Somewhat clever. That's who let the dogs out. Not not a provocative question for the strikers. (laughs) Also, the New York strikers just aren't hot. 
people oh. in people in New York are hotter on average, I feel like, than L.A. Mm-hmm. But the writers in L.A. are a little bit hotter than the New York writers. That writers. might be true. That said, I mean, like, you now, know, there are a lot of ugly writers, yeah. but the hot writers—if <laughs> they're going to go anywhere, they're going. If they're going to go anywhere. They're going to go to LA because they're also, you know, they're they're slashies. You know, right. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're model slash, actor <laughs> slash, stand up slash writer. You know, mm-hmm. they're in front of the camera. Right. We have to spend more time outside in L.A., so you have to be a little bit cuter, you know, for everybody to see at all times. Um, that said, I do want to talk about being in New York quickly. I saw Jessica Chastain in A Doll's House, which mm. I did not know I was going to get the performance we got, which is, uh, without spoiling, because you haven't seen it, correct? No, I got booked for a um, Pride beauty campaign the day that I was supposed to go. Oh, that happens at the end of a doll's house. Actually, Nora has to. She has to. She has to go. And it's that's why she walks out of. Tor- yeah, that's she, why she walks she, out of Torvald. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, it's the HRC calling. Um, uh, yeah, it's a very minimalist and I would describe it as grayscale production. And I've never really seen a play where they really kind of make you lean in, and it's all about listening to the very specific and unadorned Ibsen dialogue. It really is shocking that it was written over a hundred years ago. Um, when you watch it, but Jessica Chastain does not overplay a single moment. And for a minute, when someone's giving you that kind of acting, you're thinking, is this enough? Is enough going on? And then by the end of it, you realize like you're clenched the entire time, really brought in by um, the restraint of what she's doing. And and everybody else in the, uh, Arian Moriad, uh, Tony nominee is also fabulous in it. So mm, uh, you mean my, my king from succession? That's the one. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, nominee from succession. Um, yes. And let me tell you something about, Ibsen. I love Ibsen. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think that's my favorite play that's over 100 years old. Mm, I, th- I really like his play Ghosts. Um, mm. And one day I will revisit um, the adaptation of Ghosts that I wrote in undergrad. Uh, I won't be revisiting good. that. So, okay, interesting. <laughs> that's something we don't have in common. Let's just cha- say I changed syphilis to AIDS. Oh, my Oh, my God. <laughs> Call up the NEA. <laughs> we have a grant like, ready to go. My professor, prof- I remember my professor, Sarah Gable. Uh, she was like, Ira, there's a lot going on in this. <laughs> She's like, would you maybe consider being a bookseller instead? <laughs> what else did you see? Oh, and I also saw um, Sean Hayes and Goodnight Oscar. I think I was talking mm. about this last week where he plays Oscar Levant, who is a very famous pianist, composer, and mm. also known hilarious wit. Um, mm-hmm. A very specific type of mid-century American celebrity. And mm-hmm. Sean Hayes, uh, to his credit, does not remind me once of Sean Hayes the entire time. And I kind mm. of think of him as somebody we're, we're thrilled to see him play Sean Hayes, generally speaking. You know, you yeah. see Jack and Will and Grace and you are familiar with Sean Hayes, the entity, and they seem similar. Here, he really has a... Uh, uh, he reminds me a little bit more of Milton Berle than Oscar Levant, but that's still the same era. And mm-hmm. you just want to see a play about the backstage goings-on at a talk show where everybody's smoking constantly and we're live on the air in a second and everything can go wrong. So it's just, a, if if you're obsessed with the uh, 1950s television and uh, the kind of pop culture emerging then, as I am, uh, the, if you're obsessed with like shows like What's My Line, as I constantly mm-hmm. bring up, really go and see it. Uh, it's 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 uh, fabulous to see. His performance is better than I think the play. Doug Wright wrote it, who did I Am My Own Wife, which I fucking love. One of the great mm. 21st century plays. Um, I think he won the Pulitzer for that, too. Uh, I Just go and see it. Uh, he's such a treasure in this role. And there's a se- uh, sequence where people shoot to their feet and clap. And I don't know that you ever get that in a st- 
straight play otherwise. Mm, let me tell you, once the play about the backstage goings on, keep it drops next season. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which Chilton employee will write that one? <laughs> me. <laughs> uh, I will also say that it is a lot. I feel like you get a lot more plays in when you're visiting New York. I found, at least for me, than actually living here. Because I, that makes sense. Yeah, there's an urgency. Like, it's like I have plans to see something with a friend. You know, I was going to see um, Once Upon a One More Time last no. week, right? And then a friend's like, oh, well, I have to go to this dinner. Uh, and so we, you know, reschedule it to a, another week. But, you know, it's like something like that. It's like if you're here visiting, though, it's like, well, I got to see all these shows in like three days. So. And it's such a pleasure to organize a trip that way. Just say, mm-hmm. okay, I'm here like to to serve the plays as an audience member. That's my primary function. I don't really care if I do anything else, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, our show this week. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That was a lot. Donna Summer, the documentary, hit HBO. Um, and we're going to find out if we love to love it, baby, mm-hmm. or if we want to dim all the lights. Right. And say goodnight. Right. Yeah. And also, this episode, we have an amazing guest who I literally cannot believe has never been on Keep It before because she's sort of like an ultimate Keep It guest. Um, yes. We have a great interview with Aisha Tyler. Thank God she's here. We I don't know what we were doing not having her on the show before, but she is as fabulous as you expect. Uh, and then also, the girls are making sequels. There's Indiana Jones is coming out. There's The Little Mermaid, which is a, you know, a remake. Uh, we just had Scream. Uh, we've got the Mission Impossibles. We've got Fast X out. I think Lewis and I want to have a discussion about which movies we actually would love to see a sequel from. Mm-hmm. A remake, et cetera. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be a provocative conversation that'll get everybody rankled. <laughs> You're loving the word provocative today. I'm like Christina Aguilera. Somebody <laughs> taught me that word, and I can't stop using it in interviews. Well, let's put on your agent provocateur. <laughs> And we'll be right back with more Keep It. On a very special episode of Stuck with Damon Young, Damon is joined by marijuana and hip-hop mogul Wiz Khalifa. That's how I describe myself. Oh, sure. I concur. Together, they engage in a discussion that covers Wiz Khalifa's Pittsburgh accent, the influential role played by his son in keeping him informed about current trends, the dynamic nature of the evolving cannabis industry, and the significance of maintaining good health. Don't miss this episode. Listen to Stuck with Damon Young for free on Spotify. Picture this. The year, 1975. The song, Love to Love You, Baby, by the iconic Donna Summer. The effect... Disco sweeps the planet, turning millions of Americans gay and leading to the creation of Keep It. Now, in the present day, we come full circle to discuss the Donna Summer documentary. But first, Lewis is going to make 23 orgasm sounds. (laughs) (laughs) When you watch her standing at the microphone, it really feels like a physical undertaking. Jesus Christ. The undulating and the squawking, it it also feels like... um, like desperate gong show contestant, you know, just I'm going to get those judges up and gonging, bitch. Yeah. Uh, I would have gone with the Apollo. She's, she's she's hoping the hook doesn't come out. Yeah, right. That too. That too. Um, I will say this. Uh, Donna Summer 
staggering talent, uh, personality, and pop culture. I mean, there was one, once upon a time, people would have said she was the only major talent to emerge from the disco era. I'm not saying that's true at all, but that's the mm-hmm. att- uh, reputation she established uh, even when, you know, disco was soon derided by everybody, i.e. white men. But it's a lot to accomplish in a documentary, and I wish it lived up to her sterling reputation because I feel like... Girl's first of all, bad. Yeah, it, what, what's crazy about this movie is the chronology of it. It can't just decide to tell a straightforward story of her. It'll do something like, we'll hear that Donna Summer invented the toot toot beep beep from Hot Stuff. Mm-hmm. And then milliseconds later, both my parents were singers. Like, it's just like, it's <laughs> it's like weaving this strange uh, uh, t- time irreverent tale of Donna Summer. And there are a couple of interesting things that emerge. For example... The size of her ambition and how she consciously decided, I'm going to give way more to this than to being a parent. Like, that is an interesting thing to uh, uh, watch in this documentary, especially because it's made by her daughter, who is very dutifully covering all of this archival footage she has of her mom. Mm. Um, but the movie is not really interested in her music, really. Like, it, mm. like in an obligatory way, like, tells you, I feel love was revolutionary uh, it, it, in this way, it tells you "Love to Love You, Baby" was uh you know groundbreaking because it was this million minute long single, and you hear from the former president of Casablanca Records how he decided it would be a long song because mm-hmm. he wa- people wanted to hear it repeated at parties. But other than hearing about how dim all the lights she wrote herself, like you don't really learn much about the music, and the music is what's important about Donna Summer. So the problem too is I feel like that the daughter was involved. You know, I mean, thank God for the archival footage. I thought what was really fun was I don't think I'd ever really from any, you know, like adaptations of Donna's life or any other things I'd watch learned like how much of a fucking goofball she was. Yeah, truly. She has all this like she has all this like camera footage of her family and like making them do skits and stuff. Yeah. Do do like this one skit of like, you know, her sister being like a psychic was like very fun. Um, I mean, I related to um archival footage of interviews with her uh, where she'd just randomly be talking in a British accent for no reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, man, it was, it was, it really felt like this should have been a play or, like, a different kind of movie that was basically from the daughter's perspective about what it was like to be Donna Summer's daughter. Yeah, you know? right, right. Um, I really got, and, like, I get that, you know, like, you know, it's very important to learn that Donna Summer was, you know, abused by um, a priest in the church, you know, by by, some, by a pastor. Um, and that later her daughter was abused by, like, someone in the housekeeper's life uh, and how that affected Donna. But that turn, when it comes right before the point where you get to, you know, Donna Summer with her, um, you know, um, going back to Jesus being born again. Yeah. There's no line drawn for no. any of these points. So nothing feels like it happened because something else just happened. So it really felt like the daughter telling an important story to her and her mother, but it wasn't important to the overall understanding of who Donna Summer is and what led her down each path. You know, I think this story is very important to tell. Um, but framing it as like a Donna Summer documentary was very odd to me. I kept thinking of um, 
How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, like the Bee Gees documentary, which was so fucking good and really like a gold standard now for like doing a documentary about legends, you know? Uh, we joked before on the show when we talked about it, you know, about the fact that um, like Justin Timberlake was in there as a talking head, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he had done, you know, his give impersonation on SNL or whatever. But even someone like that would have helped. There were no interviews with any of Donna's contemporaries. No interviews with people who worked with her. I was like, first of all, Barbara Streisand basically does anything these days, okay? Uh, And so I'm like, right. So I'm like, HBO, you couldn't get her on air talking about enough is enough? Like, what's going on here? Like, where were the people involved who worked with her um, who could talk about, you know, what it was like being in the studio with her, et cetera? Um, that's what I was really missing, her place in the industry. Giorgio Moroder, yes. who, who is, of course, the like the orchestrator of disco, who, you know, as much as, like, Burt Bacharach belongs with Dionne Warwick, Giorgio Moroder belongs with Donna Summer. It's that kind of relationship. Um, he's reduced to, like, 90 seconds in the movie. Yeah. And he, it's like, you wouldn't even know from the movie that he wrote Love to Love You, Baby. You know? Yeah. So it's like, it's confused about the impact of her music. And also, it does not place her music in context. You just said it. Like, you don't understand, like, what is going on in music at the time? Like how meaningful it is for like Donna Summer to emerge like alongside things like punk, et cetera. Like the landscape uh-huh. of the 70s is not spelled out for anybody. They don't even discuss like Demolition Night, you know, no, where right. all those disco records are blown up, um, set on fire by, you know, a bunch of people who like in retrospect, we now know we're like just like racist and homophobic. And that's why they hated disco. We don't get to that. Um, later in the episode, we're going to talk to Aisha Tyler, um, just about, um, you know, one of our favorite books, um, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs by Chuck Kloshman, right? And I feel like, well, the reason I love that book so much is it takes pop culture that's ephemeral and then finds a way to tie it together, you know? And it's, it's, if you're going to talk about an artist, you have to talk about what is going on in their lives. You have to talk about also what is going on in the world. One of the moments I knew that this documentary was not going to be good was when, like, her ex-husband, like, picks up the copy of Rolling Stone, right? And it's like, it's amazing that, like, this Black woman got on the cover of Rolling Stone and, like, they sort of, like, you know, say that in a couple sentences. I'm like, okay, tell me how you got this Black woman on the cover of Rolling Stone. Right, yes. Where's an editor? Where's someone? Yeah, right, exactly. When they get to... Um, she works hard for the money. The first music video by a black woman who was on there. And we know, like, tell us about the struggles that Whitney and Michael had getting on Mm -hmm. MTV. Tell us that they were racist at the time. Like, it's just like, oh, she was the first black woman to do that. I'm like, okay, why? Right. And also, so they eventually get into the portion where um, she, you know, religion sort of changes her, basically. Mm. She becomes this born-again Christian. And there are tricks, there's like, it's like lightly foreshadowed in the way that she expresses um, with clarity that her performances on stage were always coming from a place of acting. That she, uh, you know, is not the, you know, sort of writhing seductress in everyday life that she portrays, um, you know, as a stage performer. It's just that if you're going to perform those songs, you basically have to do that in order to sell them. That's the Mm -hmm. persona you hear on the record. But they get to the part where she is condemned for uh, saying... It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. She had a famous homophobic, I guess, extemporaneous moment at a concert. And then 
Then there were rumors. Then there were. (laughs) 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 Then and then then there are rumors that she had said afterwards that like AIDS is uh, God's punishment for homosexuality, whatever. Which I'm sure was like you know an extremely popular sentiment at the time. It might. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but I'm I'm sure she wasn't the only one saying things like that. But they don't talk about. Well, did she mean that? Because I come away from that being like, I think she did say it, and then never really owned it. You know, yeah. like it's just a str- uh, it's just a strange moment. They don't they. It's a movie that's trying to give you all these sides of her life and how difficult it is to be a parent, how difficult it is to be, be taken seriously as somebody who was making the music. Again, she's created some of this music herself. Um, but then you have all these questions about how it all stitches together. Namely, how does she speak German? What did she do in Germany to like sudden, like she, she joins the German production of hair Hair. and you watch her singing in German and you're just like, what, how did you get here? Unless you already know that. And I've read a book, you know, that told me about that. So like, I wasn't confused, but I'm like, when she's like, if you don't know that history of her, it's sort of not in the documentary at all. Yeah. It's random. And, um, There's that famous quote from Shaka Khan when Donna Summer died. She's like, she's one of the few black women I could speak German with, which is legendary. Yes. Uh, I'm sure Tina Turner was the other one. Uh, that, right. Who else? Yeah. Um, that international spy bitch. Um, <laughs> I also want to say that <laughs> it's such a shame that Donna Summer was from that era because... <laughs> She could say "fuck you, faggots" today. Oh, please! <laughs> and we'd still be we'd still be spinning the tracks. She's she's marshaling pride. Please <laughs> get out the megaphone and scream "faggot" at me from Santa Monica Boulevard. And Zelia Banks has said, "I want a truck to run you white gays over." <laughs> and what do those white gays go and do? Listen to Anna Wintour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I also think contextualizing Donna would have helped, you know? What does anyone who was her contemporary then think about what she said? And tons uh, of those or, people are still around. Cheryl yeah. Lynn, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Like, did was it weird when you heard that Donna Summer said, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe AIDS was a punishment from God, you know? Like, did, do you know someone who felt the same way? Did you know that it was a lie? Did you, you know, did you know that it was true, et cetera? You know, I just feel like there was... There was no, there's no investigation going no. on in this documentary. Right, right, right. And you barely heard from any gay people about that. Yeah, just it, it could have used a lot more um, points of view. Were there dancers? Were there people who worked with her? Yeah, I'm like, were, were they and, all under NDAs? And by the way, they didn't even talk about the song that was out at that time when she said these things allegedly. This time I know it's for real, which is in her top five for me. So it's just yeah. like you you didn't you didn't get the sense of even a fan's perspective in the movie. So if it's if if it's supposed to be this like, you know, puff piece about Donna Summer, well, where's the puffing? <laughs> there was huffing. There was no puffing. And my house it's still dance. standing. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, Your fractured fa- fairy tales book where you <laughs> coming soon. It'll be a pop-up. Uh what? Before we wrap up, what are sure. your favorite Donna Summer um, songs? Uh, let's see here. Well, I was pleased that in the final moments of the documentary, you got a minute of Sunset People, which has this like simmering street vibe that uh, is really fitting Donna Summer's voice and uh, sort of groove. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Dim All the Lights I love. I do love the Oscar-winning uh, Last Dance from mm-hmm. the... 
Oscar nominated, and that is a a shock in a Suicide Squad type way. Uh, thank God it's Friday movie. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously a song that'll live on far after all of us will. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's another one I'm forgetting. I and and this time I know it's for real. That's my other favorite mm. one. I love working the midnight shift. Mm, Could it be magic? Um, well, I you mean, love that big concept album of hers too, the fairy tale one. Yes, I love that. Once upon a time, yes. amazing, amazing album. Uh, and also like, just like her erotic era, you know, like yeah, like summer fever. Try me. I know we can make it, which is 18 minutes long. Good. There's also protection, uh, which um, Bruce Springsteen wrote for Donna. Uh, and it's from the um, self-titled album with also with um, Love is in Control, Finger on the Trigger. Like, those are jams. That's sort of like her rock era. Um, and it's like a really good album. So, like, if you haven't listened to that album, um, it's from 82. Like, I think that's one to get into. I wrote back in, like, 2017 for Vice, this whole, like, guide into getting into Donna Summer. So if you Google that, it's somewhere. This podcast should just be you telling people, you know what? I handled this about nine years ago. If you could just, <laughs> if you could just type it into the big old Google and spare me. Donna Summer, I think, is the only person besides ABBA where if you were to construct a playlist of just their songs, and these are artists that are functioning more than 40 years ago, I think you could do an entire party just on their songs. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know, there's enough there that it's fascinating enough and um, kinetic enough. I mean, just add in the remixes, too. Please, yeah. All right, when we're back, we're joined by the fantastic Aisha Tyler. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated. So, don't believe the dupes. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times, okay? You're going on Oprah, you get in the car, and you're getting some Barefoot Dreams. Dressing head-to-toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. So, for Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. It was also pretty boring, by the way. To The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and made to compete in a beauty pageant. Amazing to watch, by the way. On each episode of Wondry's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition for women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, 
operated on, and then they were ranked by a panel of judges. And that's just after Truman Capote was done with them. Unsurprisingly, it led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest tonight has unmatched wit, charm, and if you don't recognize her, you must not own a television because she is all over it all the time and has been for the past, what, 25 <laughs> years or something? Uh, she is on Criminal Minds. You might have seen her on Whose Line Is In Anyway. Friends comes to mind. Talk Soup comes to mind. The Talk comes to mind. She's an author, director, and now you can catch her on the thrilling miniseries, The Last Thing He Told Me on Apple TV. Please welcome to Keep It, the incredible, venerable Aisha Tyler. Wow, that was such an intro, and I will work very hard not to take umbrage with the word venerable. (laughs) 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 That was very lovely, thank you. (laughs) First of all, uh, psyched to see you just in general, Uh, you're hilarious, etc., but it's also rad to see you take a mostly dramatic role. And I'm wondering, like, how often does, like, a dramatic role, like, appear on your doorstep? Do people think of you as, like, a dramatic actress as much as they think of you as, you know, uh, comedic, etc.? Well, I feel like my fan base is relatively siloed. And I think that that question kind of underlines uh, underlines that because I am on a very grim, dark drama criminal mind. I've been on there for six mm. seasons. So that was probably... And, and I've actually been, I've been super lucky, like... The same year that I was doing Friends, I was also shooting 24. So I was doing like both roles at the same time. And so I've been lucky to kind of be able to straddle those two worlds. I mean, obviously, I come out of comedy and I got my start as a stand up. And, I, you know, I think that's how people think of me. But I've just been always really fortunate to be able to snag these dramatic roles. And I think some of the greatest dramatic actors of our time, you know, came out of comedy. You know, Tom Hanks started out as a stand-up and his very first, you know, television show was like a super broad drag, drag based show that would not fly in today's climate whatsoever. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Um, Even the phrase you know, Bosom Buddies gives me shivers. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Eddie, Eddie Murphy, Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, I think there's a really great tradition of comedians that make that transition. I don't, I don't even dare to mention my name in that company other than to say that um, I feel like comedians were so accustomed to kind of deep bone uh, bone slicing humiliation that we're very good at making this transition to drama because we understand suffering. <laughs> you know who I would compare you to, actually? Um, uh, Alan Cumming. You know, where it's like, actually, oh his entire gosh. career has had dr- drama in it, but he cut such an imposing figure as, you know, this uh, comic, confident 
uh, talents, an unmistakable persona that like you think of that first and that leads to you thinking about comedy. And then you remember, oh, yeah, the good wife, et cetera. That is so flattering. Uh, he's amazing. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think like, you know, if you look at some of the ways he, he's expressed himself in his personal life, you know, writing about his childhood, you know, co- you know, comedians are really mining our tragedy for comedy, right? That's really, that's like, that's the metier, that's the art form. So um, yeah, that's a really lovely comp- uh, comparison. Thank you. Very flattering. I will- I will let Ira get a question in, but I just want to say <laughs> the fact that I brought up Alan Cummings' name and you already knew things about him. Underline one of the things I just love about you as a celebrity: you actually know things, Aisha. I just, <laughs> I really appreciate well, it. <laughs> I will say this about that: um, I, I am a nerd. I always have been, and um, I, I read kind of compulsively. Like I wake up in the middle of the night and try to like read the entire internet before I fell back asleep. <laughs> um, and when I was on the talk, they used to call me Aishapedia. Um, but it was not a compliment. I it was it was accompanied by like epic eye rolling because I was like, well, actually, guys, uh, if you read out, if you look it up, you'll find that. So I was that character from The Simpsons, constantly some version of mansplaining everybody like to death. But even speaking about you knowing like literally everything, you know, from being on the talk and then also talk soup, you know, you're you're so tapped into pop culture. Um, and I have to ask a bit because, first of all, Lewis is always um, talking about how he spends his evenings rewatching Ebert and Roper. Oh yes, and oh, I, I recently rewatched your one of your episodes. Uh, and I thought they did ask, the one where there were good movies, and not the one where there were bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask just about doing that show. What what it was like, you know, just being there with Roper. The episode that I watched was well. Unfortunately, you have to talk about the Black Dahlia. Yeah, but okay, but by the way, that was the good episode. Because I feel like that was Black Dahlia and maybe like Rocky Balboa. But then the next yeah. episode, I had to talk about like unaccompanied minors. Yeah. <laughs> I had friends in that movie. I was like, what do I do? Um, <laughs> It was amazing. I mean, I'm I'm a movie nerd. I always have been. Like when I was a little kid, I was, a, I mean, I was a very, I was, very much a social pariah, like, you know, very much an outsider. And one of my favorite things to do was my mom would drop me off at the movies, like at 11, would open and I'd buy like a matinee ticket and then I would just stay at the theater all day and I would like sneak into every movie in the theater. Same, same. Um, That's how I saw the R-rated ones. Absolutely. You just wait 10 (laughs) minutes until nobody was paying attention and then you'd get on in there and watch, you know, Blue Lagoon or whatever, like five (laughs) times. Uh, Risky business I've seen like 15 times in the theater. Um, But, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, think I knew then like you know that it was going to define me as an adult but I remember thinking this is going to be so rad because I love movies and I just get to watch like a bunch of movies and it is such hard work I mean you're watching five movies in a day you're not peeing you're not eating you know you can't just like tune out if you hate the movie you've got to take notes um and uh, listen it's I wasn't like being done a coal mine or anything like that you know what I mean um <laughs> it, but it's easy to talk about a movie when you love it and it's honestly because you're, I'm in the business, it's a little harder to talk about a film when you hate it because inevitably you know somebody associated with it or you just understand that it's almost as hard to make a shitty movie as it is to make a good one. Like, it's still the same number of hours. It's still the same kind of dedication. And and then what comes out sometimes is just a big pile of, like, you know, steaming fecal matter. So um, <laughs> it was really, I really had to work hard to be kind, um, you know, and... I mean, I'll say this now. I don't care. So one of the movies was Apocalypto. 
Mm, and this was yes. like this was like this was like midstream with like what we knew about you know Mel Gibson's inner life, and some of it had come out, but not all of it had come out. And I remember saying, "Listen, no matter what you feel about this guy, who he is." I have to say that this is a beautifully made film and very affecting. And and then some other stuff came out, including him saying that he wanted, you know, his partner to be raped by a pack of expletives. And I I remember wanting to walk back that review. And that's something I talk about a lot with my friends. Like mm-hmm. I'm very much not a separate the art from the artist person. And I understand that perspective, but I feel like experience informs art. And I don't need to give my money and support to people who have disparaged by people or other groups of people openly in public. That's just how I feel. And so it's interesting because I have very mixed feelings looking back at that experience. I loved it. And I I loved working with Richard and I love talking about film because I love film, but it's very, very interesting. Like I remember later seeing him and being like, I want to kick him in the shin and like take back my review to his face, <laughs> um, which I haven't had the opportunity to do yet. <laughs> uh, you know, there's still time. <laughs> I just started an East Coast, West Coast, Gibson, Tyler Beef. Let's see if the internet for me. <laughs> the movie Apocalypto should not cause this much consternation to anybody. I just want to say. I'm, I'm concerned. It shouldn't. <laughs> Let alone it shouldn't. you. It shouldn't. I mean, it's, the thing is, you know, it's, it's a really beautiful film. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's the larger question about can terrible people make good art? And I can't answer that question in the in the, the, the paltry time we have allotted to us. But it is a question I ask myself constantly. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. can a good, can a, can a bad person make good art? Um, and do they deserve our support? And I don't know the answer to that. I write, I write about it in my diary every night. <laughs> <laughs> so this means you keep a diary. Oh, no, I don't keep a diary. I oh. drink my feelings, friend. No <laughs> <laughs> I don't write them down. I wash them away with whiskey. <laughs> a sloshier version of a diary. I see, I see. Yes, no, okay. exactly. Uh, on the same tip, I want to ask about um, Talk Soup, which I just feel like, mm. I, I think a lot about, um, for instance, like the old perspective of things like VH1 and the Isle of the 80s crowd, which also uh, I watched you on. It just feels like there's a certain there was a certain fervor for discussing pop culture once upon a time that yes. I guess now is sort of siloed to use a word you just used on things like YouTube and maybe Twitter. But once upon a time, there were really centralized locations where you would just hear people who were informed and funny yes. talking about pop culture. And we really got to like, uh, this sounds very Pollyanna of me, but enjoy it together. Are you nostalgic for that era of sort of pop cultural commentary at all? Well, listen, what took its place was the internet, wasn't it? It was right. Twitter. Twitter is mm. where, you know, Twitter is our water cooler, you know, well, it was anyway. Now the water cooler areas just got like, you know, just douchebags and tumbleweeds. But that was really where that's, you know, that's what took the place of like, you know, those kind of like last week in and all the VH1 mm. shows. And and they, they try to revive them every once in a while, you know, these kind of 80s and 90s and aughts reviews and and they don't feel as urgent, right? Because they've been recorded and you can't interact with them. And I think that's the thing that we that I still love about the internet is the opportunity to have an ongoing conversation that's constantly suffused with new information and new imagery and new ideas. And and we didn't have that back then. So um, no, I don't think that I I miss it. You know, we're just so overwhelmed by input nowadays, right? There's just so much stuff going on. Um that I, I look back at those shows now and I and I kind of wonder 
why they were so compelling, even though I was on a lot of them. Um, uh, uh, you know, even some of the shows that were popular a few years ago, Tosh.0 and the reboot of Fox Soup, you know, they feel a little, a little dated. Because mm-hmm. um, you're just hearing one person's perspective, one person's opinion. Or even mm-hmm. if you have a little collection of comedians, you're hearing just kind of, it's very quippy. But you don't have the dynamic um, back and forth, that, that kind of asymmetric interaction that you get on the internet, which can be wonderful and terrible. But, you know, quite honestly, I kind of miss Twitter. You know what I mean? I don't really, I'm not on it as much now. It's just, it's just, it's such a disappointing place. Um, but I, I missed that that fun and that dynamism of live tweeting something and having people shoot back at you and having it really feel like this, if not global, at least regional conversation. Yeah. You know, I really feel like that era was, um, it's also when one of my folks, favorite books came out, you know, it was sex drugs and cocoa Puss by Chuck Lost. I love that book. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that book. I love no. it. I love it. I love it. And, that is the uh, book that made me write my first book. Uh, it's the one that inspired I, me to sell my first one. So there you uh, go. And I, yeah. talk, I told Chuck Klosterman, I got to tell Chuck Klosterman that his face. <laughs> um, and he was like, that's weird. Which is exactly <laughs> the kind of response that you would expect from Chuck Klosterman. But yeah, it's a great book. Absolutely. I, I just remember, you know, high school into college, um, you know, these shows would be on the air, right? I love, I love the 80s, et cetera. But you're right, they mm-hmm. would be quippy. And it was so sort of, I mean, novel to have this book come out and where it felt exactly like the thing that we were watching, but also someone was taking things seriously. You know what? I feel like I miss that on Twitter, but I also miss that in, you know, a lot of the websites that we read now because I feel like we've gotten even past, you know, sort of like, I would love to talk about this random movie from the 80s or something, but I would like something more than just, you know, a couple jokes about it and then we move on, you know? Right. Well, I mean, like what Chuck did, and I remember telling him this, was that he he was a, he synthesized, right? He he drew these big, meaningful theses and conclusions from things that felt both ephemeral and minimal to us at the time. But we realized, like later in life, really affected us the way we perceived the world, the way we perceived ourselves, things that really captivated us. You know that we were kind. Of of dismissing, you know, as again, as as entertainment, as as ephemeral pop culture kind of throwaway experiences. And he was like, listen, this said something about our era, or this made us feel something, or this this changed the direction of our culture. And he was just so smart about pulling all these different threads into these like and synthesizing them into these grand statements about uh American cultural history. Um mm-hmm. and you know, as a geek, as a nerd, you know, those things really did affect me, you know, like I collected comic books, but like that meant something to me. It wasn't just something like I was thinking I was going to sell later to like help pay for my like college car. Right. You know, like they, <laughs> they, you know, and, and especially as a person of color and as a woman, like the way that I related to graphic novels and comic books, like it, there was a lot of specificity in those experiences that has affected me to this day. And they felt bigger and more important than the way that people would dismiss them as, you know, I mean, the word pop culture, you know, inherently implies um, disposability. And he was like, no, these experiences weren't disposable. They were, they defined us and it's okay to think about them that way. And here, and these are my reflections. And I, I don't know, he was just such a smart guy. Um, and, and I think, you know, we don't get that kind of elevated analysis to popular culture nowadays. Mm-hmm. Something, something else that uh, came to mind when you were talking about how, when you, uh, hear like people talking about pop culture from 20 years ago, you're kind of just getting one perspective and it's not as interactive. And that makes me think about stand up. 
uh, which you obviously uh, came from. Do you find yourself craving stand-up uh, as a, a viewer less because it's that? It's just one person talking and giving commentary and like the internet has made interactivity so much more kind of craveable in terms of perspectives and stuff. Do, do you worry about the vitality of stand-up in the current uh, entertainment climate, I guess? That's a good question. I mean, I will say this. I feel like comedy used to be a lot more disposable, like when Comedy Central was such a powerhouse of stand-up and there were like all those little like bits and bites and like, you know, Saturday night stand-up and, you know, um, I mean, even Def Comedy Jam, like, which was, you know, really obviously like a defining show, a seminal show, but there was a lot more of, of these little digestible like bits and bites of comics all like amalgamated into one show. I do think that like, a great hour still has relevance and you know these big thinkers that put together an hour that really says something about themselves their experiences you know um who we are as a culture right now those things still mean something and and I always wanted and I don't know that I necessarily accomplished it but it was what I wanted for myself was to put an hour together that felt like a body of work felt like an album you know felt like Led mm. Zeppelin 4 you know what <laughs> I mean like you had to listen to it beginning to end and it said something of a piece rather than just a, like a, an accumulation of singles um and I, I don't really think that that's what my special did but that was my um my hope and I feel like great specials really do do that you know early chris rock you know richard pryor live on the sunset strip mm -hmm. um for all of its like inherent and specific and absolutely uh real problems you know eddie murphy delirious you know mm -hmm. they they were a piece of work right they were a piece of art um and i still think that that kind of comedy has impact and has meaning you know um Bo Burnham special inside or um oh god her name is not in my head because I have the memory of a drunken toddler um I'll think of it in a minute there have just been a lot of, of great specials that have come out and really felt meaningful and mm -hmm. um you know even some of the, the early Dave Chappelle specials I think you know really landed and really meant something um and I still think there's room for that kind of art now um but you know, not every comedian, not like every musician. I mean, you know, comedy is like music, like it's consumable. And again, all art can be disposable depending on how people consume it. And then every once in a while, something comes out and really radicalizes people. You know, I would, mm -hmm. whenever I would give advice to younger comedians, um, typically when I was drunk and against their will, I would always <laughs> say, I would always say that, um, uh, that, you know, being funny is important, but it's really not the most important thing. The most important thing is to tell the truth. Um, and when people come and see a show and it's funny, they go, oh, that guy's so funny. That was so enjoyable. But when someone says something really honest and real, that's when people go, holy shit, you have to fucking go see this guy. You know, and that and I brought up live on the Sunset Strip because, you know, that's what you know, Richard Price talking about setting himself on fire and that he almost died. You know, or some of his early stuff where he's talking about the fact that he grew up in a whorehouse and he was forced to, you know, perform sex acts on adults as a child. Like, that's shit that shouldn't be funny. You know what I mean? But he's owning his experience and he's transforming it into something that he's weaponizing it on his own behalf. And that's the kind of comedy that really changes the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world. And, and, and it's the kind of comedy that helps the comedian transform the way they see themselves and the way they see the world. And that's the kind of stuff that I think 
is extraordinary and there's still very much a place for that kind of comedy you know in the world when you said Led Zeppelin 4, that really trips something in my mind. I really do think a good comedy special is like an album. That sense of like being introduced mm-hmm. to an entire personality and like, mm-hmm. you know, like a few random vignettes in their life, episodes in their life and how they add up to something. And you kind of are left with figuring out what, what it all means. Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm looking forward to John Early's special so much. His music one, you know? Yeah. Yes, yes. And like, you know, even Mark Maron, like one of the things I really admired about Mark Maron was that... um he his his sets really felt like he was riffing like they were like a jazz set or i mean god help me because i'm not a fish fan but like you know going watch fish or something like it felt like he was making it up as he went along but he very artfully was not you know what i mean he, he very much had a plan but it felt to you like you were being carried away on this wave of like ideas and you would just be trans, you would really submit to it, you know, and, um, you know, and then at the end, you know, we masterfully kind of bring it all around. And I really love that kind of comedy. He was somebody I really wanted to emulate as a baby comic because it always felt like he was just making it up as he goes along, man. He's so cool. He's like the weird old Miles Davis of San Francisco. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to do that. I'm picturing him married to Cicely Tyson now. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> A girl can dream. <laughs> uh, I mean, also just speaking of like a big comedy that you've been involved in for years, so fucking long, um, Archer, uh, which I'm such a yes. huge fan of. Um, I wonder just what what it feels like doing a show since 2009. Um, the last season is airing this year. Um, what it's what like your relationship is like with you know a television show that you've been doing this long that you're being funny on um like you know like just what does that feel like coming up on the end of it you know it's 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 bittersweet i mean mostly bitter because we still feel like we have lots of stories to tell um Mm -hmm. but very few shows get a 14 season run i mean it's so unusual in and of itself that maybe you know, we've gotten comfortable with the idea that we were never going to go off the air just because, you know, it's it's such a beautiful, extraordinary piece of, of creative. Um, and I thought it's just, I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm on it. I mean, it's just, it's just such a great show. It's so unique. There's nothing like mm. it. And I remember when we did the pilot, I was like, this show is never going to go. It's just, too smart and too funny and too dirty there's no way it gets picked up um and so every season has felt in a lot of ways like a revelation um that we keep getting to tell these incredibly you know sophisticated and at the same time base stories i mean these are there's just so much elegance and so much erudition and and literary sophistication in the show and then there's just dick jokes on dick jokes um it's my (laughs) favorite it's my favorite kind of comedy. I, the, a word that um, Adam Reed and I coined like really early in the run was the, was the word smilthy. That was smart and filthy. Um, <laughs> and it's a show that, you know, is so layered that you can you discover things over and over again every time you watch the episodes. There's so much buried comedy in it. I'm just so proud of it. And I'm so impressed by the cast. They're so good at what they do. And I feel very strongly that there's never going to be another show like this one. There have been ones that have emulated it and ones that people have mentioned in the same you know, voice, you know, and, and they're great shows, you know, Family Guy or Bob's Burgers or, or Bojack Horseman, but 
there's just nothing like Archer, you know, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. extraordinarily proud of it. And, uh, and it's just been a joy. It's been a joy to make. So I feel like I'm just savoring this last season and the time with the cast. You know, we rarely see each other. We don't record together. So we see each other a couple times a year, like typically at Comic-Con. Um, and it's just this massive kind of like golden retriever pile of, of like hugging and inappropriate comments. So I'm really looking <laughs> forward to that. You know, I'm looking forward to, to having that um, experience with them this year and just super proud of it. Super proud of it. Really just consistently funny. And I've really, I really yeah. just enjoyed it. And it's also what it says. It's been on so long. Uh, there are moments where it's like, I haven't seen like a couple seasons. And then I just love binging them like together to get ready for the new season. So, I mean, congrats on the entire run of that. Uh, thank you. I, I feel, um, you know, it's, it's obviously Adam Reed who created the show is just a genius and Matt Thompson and Casey Willis have taken it over are, you know, e- equivalently, you know, uh, high level thinkers. And, and then this cast is just, they're all extraordinary comedians, like effortless comedians. And, you know, getting to do something like this for such a long time, um, it really starts, I'm not, without being glib, because, you know, everyone's working really hard, but um, these characters really get in your bones and, and then the opportunity to kind of push and, and find new ways to be funny and new opportunities to kind of straddle the line between comedy and kind of like, you know, deep emotional exploitation, you know, there's just, there have been some real emotional moments, you know, Archer sacrificed himself multiple times to save Lana's life uh, in, in absolute, like, ingenuousness. You know what I mean? Like, there are these real emotional moments on a show that is, you know, literally, we've done jokes where, you know, there's a, there's been a threesome and there's boob, boob shapes on the wall in fecal matter. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? Years ago when I worked at a blog, we would occasionally ask people who are as nerdy as you are and, and rightfully claim to be um, what their favorite movie scene of all time is. And I feel like you're somebody who has seen everything. If I ask you what your favorite movie scene is ever, what would it be? Oh, shit. <laughs> I really want to give you like something super sophisticated. And I'm bummed <laughs> because I feel like I'm going to disappoint you and the world. <laughs> um Man, okay. I'm, this is not my favorite scene, but it is. It is a, a, one of my favorite beats. It's not, and it's not even that great, but it is a great movie. Okay, so <laughs> I, I'm a big action fan. I always have been. I was with my single dad, so like, you know, that was something we did together. We would like, he'd take many movies that were like, you know, way out of like the appropriate like you know viewing range for my age. And um, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was Die Hard, and it still holds up. Mm. The first film still holds up at absolutely in every way, and. Um, there is this um there's this beat in the film where uh the there's like a I feel like there's like a tank or a humvee or something coming up to the building up to Nakatomi Plaza and um it's gonna like blow out you know it's gonna like come up and like attack the building and everything like that and there are the the terrorists are arguing about what to do next. And Alan Rickman is talking to the German guys and he's like, she's in thy fenster. And they don't know what he's saying. <laughs> and he's very delicate, right? Alan Rickman says, he's such a, he's so brilliant in this movie. And he's, she's in thy fenster. And the guy's like, no. And he goes, shoot the glass. Uh, and then they shoot all the glass, uh, <laughs> which kicks off a cavalcade of exciting moments for Bruce Willis, <laughs> must have walked barefoot, 
across this room full of glass, which ticks off a question for you as like an 11 year old watching this movie, because that's why you love, you know, action movies. You're like, you're always imagining that you're going to be the one that would save the world. Like, what would you do in this situation? You know, and and you always think that you'd be the one to like, you know, crawl across the glass and swing across an empty elevator shaft. Um, And I don't know, those transporting kind of ordinary guy in extraordinary circumstances, you know, things are always the stuff that I really loved about old fashioned action movies. Nowadays, everybody's like taking like 17 bullet holes to the chest and then like going and having, you know, like a nice latte. But back then, you know, guys got hurt. (laughs) They died. Um, So that's, it's like, again, it's not the greatest scene, but it's a, it's a great, great scene. Um, And I want something more, I want something more filmic. I want something people can be like, oh, she's a student of film. But as I think about it, all of my favorite scenes are from action films. Born Identity, Terminator, <laughs> um, Out of Sight. I just, I love, I love great analog action movies. You know, um, I know we're living in a digital age of CGI, but I really love an old-fashioned action film. Linda Hamilton doing pull-ups at the beginning of Terminator 2. Oh, yeah. Yes, right? absolutely. Um, I, yes. Every time Linda. I shop for like athletic wear at ASOS, I'm trying to be Linda Hamilton. I want that gray <laughs> tank. I want those pants, those boots. Yeah, yeah. The kind of the cargo belt. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. And I need just to find a rusted cot to tip over in my backyard so I can do some pull-ups. Um, yeah, those were those were the movies that that really formed me. And I think it's there's you know they're beautifully written films and you know beautifully evocative performances, but I was just such a weird little kid and I I always I wanted to save the world. And so I was always just drawn to those moments where ordinary people push themselves past their limitations to do extraordinary things. And I think mm. that's still what draws me to film um, is seeing people make great personal sacrifice um, for others. Well, thank you so much for being here, Aisha. As expected, when we heard you were going to be on the show, we're like, oh, thank God, somebody who's so rad. Just like you yeah. could talk about anything and we love that about you. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. I, I I wish that I could put my little face in the camera, but it's such a pleasure to meet you guys and so lovely. Thank you for such smart, um, thoughtful questions. And um, God, what a delight. I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. With the premiere of The Little Mermaid, the fifth Indiana Jones, and, of course, my favorite, Fast X. Is there any IP left that hasn't gotten another chapter or interpretation? And which ones do we think are due revisiting? Now, Lewis. Yes. You know what my number one choice is. Are you going to throw down salt? Salt. You know we need a salt, too. And actually, we've gotten to the point now where I'm like, salt remake? I don't know. There's a, there's a film coming out that has Angelina Jolie and Halle Berry in it. Oh, it was right. Announced. Yes. Um, that's supposed to be like some sort of spy action thriller. That sounds fun. But I'm just like, see, even seeing the commercials for Indiana Jones 5, seeing Harrison Ford's ass running around here, I'm like, what's good? Angelina mm-hmm. Jolie is still like in her best shape. Right. Uh, if there's a salt sequel, it better be called Salt with a Deadly Peppa. And there better be. <laughs> Salt and Peppa on the soundtrack. <laughs> Salt and Peppa have two amazing album titles, that. And also, of course, Hot, Cool, and Vicious. <laughs> Nobody's all three. <laughs> um, you know what's going to be a weird choice um, for mm. me to say? I recently rewatched this film. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Interesting. Uh, what do you think we would do with that movie? Well, Which, so, by the way, is, of course, very cute, and Kate Hudson is very winning in it, yes. Yeah, I mean, and B.B. Newworth is iconic in it. I, well, let's just, can we just have a Hall of Fame of, like, third-build people in rom-coms? <laughs> I'm talking about Nora Dunn as your publisher or whatever is <laughs> going on in these movies. I love exactly those people. B.B. Newworth can, of course, do anything. Yeah, um, I just think, I was re-watching it and finding how funny, it, I hadn't seen it since it came out, Um and I think it's so fun that, like, she's working out this story, you know, that's about scamming him. And he's doing this ad and, like, making this bet for her. I feel like it says sort of a lot about men and women at the time and sort of about, about the media landscape at the time. And then they get together at the end. And I just sort of wonder what that movie looks like now. 
Yeah, right. I wonder what it would have to say about the media world, what it would have to say about men and women. Um, you know, I think that it would be interesting if not, you know, a sequel, uh, because I th- also think they're so fucking, win- they're so great on camera together. Kate Hudson is like so charismatic. Matthew's at his best. It's before the ego got out of control. Yeah, with right. him giving 20-minute <laughs> monologues at the Oscars and then announcing he was going to run for office right. um, before that. So I would love to see that. Or if not, some loose remake. I hesitate to say remake because a remake would be like some Netflix version of like, he's all that. Mm-hmm, you know, the mm-hmm. one with Addison Ray that was abysmal. Um, oh, yeah, she didn't but, win an Oscar for that, did she? No. Uh, but she had some steep competition that year, okay? <laughs> You're right, I should be more sympathetic. I'm sure she turned up at the Indie Spirits. But I am in love with, and this is maybe a different topic, but I'm in love with a remake that isn't quite a remake. And I wonder, like, the Writers Guild rules for this, because it's just like, it's a blue jasmine, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is A Streetcar Named Desire. Correct. But you watch it, and at no point does it say, like, based on and i feel like a lot of writers get away from saying like inspired by something yeah you know right, like right, right where's my inspired by um how to lose a guy in 10 days where you're re- kind of remaking it but not really remaking it you know like splash and you get to um you know that fucking a fish movie right <laughs> the shape of water yes okay. um you know okay i am somewhat enchanted by the fact that a movie like top gun can spawn top gun maverick i don't love top gun maverick but uh-huh. like I like that amount of time passing before we get a sequel and just like the world of change that happens in between. Mm-hmm. My vote for something from that time that we should do a sequel to, and I say sequel because apparently there's some remake version with Selena Gomez coming out or was announced anyway, Working Girl. Because mm. you get, first of all, all of those people are still with us. I'm talking Melanie Griffith. I'm talking Sigourney Weaver, Joan Cusack, Harrison Ford. Alec Baldwin might not be available, whatever. Um, but everybody's there. What's going on with him? Yeah, uh, he's finishing the movie Rust. Everybody's excited to see it. When we get <laughs> updates about that fucking movie, I'm like, are we in hell? Are we in hell? Um, but uh, uh, just in the way that we're allegedly getting a, a 9 to 5 sequel, this is specifically a world that has been turned upside down since that movie came out. The idea of mm-hmm. being a professional person, um, the strange competitiveness and yet camaraderie that can occur at an office. Uh, I think people are a lot more skeptical of not just uh, the, the quote unquote, the workplace, but like the fulfillment you're supposed to get from a job and like who gives you money and like what you're and, and who your overlords are and what you should think of them and uh, how, how grateful you should be for a job. So I would love to see a lot of those people come back and see like, uh, you know, maybe a, a Melanie Griffith character, Tess McGill is her name in the movie, who's maybe still working, coming up against a young upstart employee or something that they're colleagues with, or maybe she's the boss. Anyway, I just, also, I think I just miss Mike Nichols terribly and would love anything in the mm. realm of Mike Nichols to live anew. Can I say a wild one? Please do. And, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's such a shame because, you know, like, um, much like Mike Nichols, um, the director of this film uh, is no longer with us. But Big. Interesting, which I believe, do you know what's interesting about Big, first of all? Do you know who wrote Big? 
Steven Spielberg's sister. Yes, yes, there is a sister Spielberg who was nominated for an Academy Award for original screenplay. And also, by the way, Elizabeth Perkins is still turning it out every which way and out. So if we can get her back yeah, in this, I would love it. I fucking love Elizabeth Perkins. I'm sure she'll be in the Weeds reboot or whatever that we just heard. This Weeds reboot, comma? And, and a Nurse Jackie reboot? You know what? I'm seated for one of them. <laughs> you can guess which one. Uh, <laughs> if Betty Gilpin comes back to Nurse Jackie, then I'm seated. Okay, then I will watch that. Okay, I'll be seated for both. Uh, <laughs> you got me, Showtime. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, we had that movie Little, which was basically a reverse big, right. you know, uh-huh. that Issa Rae was in and Marseille Martin. But big, you know, with all of the, you know, the thing about like an adolescent boy wanting to be an adult, right? I think now maybe we're in the era where, you know, like you'd want to be younger. But what that would even mean? And would he want to be younger present time or like younger back in the 80s, you know? And I think that you could get a, you know, it's sort of like that movie 17 again too. But I think that like if you get, you know, the cast and you reversed it with Tom Hanks, um, it would be fun, you know? I also just, I don't know, maybe he's like too old for this now to want to be like, we'll see him like running around in like denim jeans and dancing on keyboards and stuff. (laughs) But I just miss when Tom Hanks was fun too. Tom Hanks has not made a movie that I want to see. I know. No, when he made A Man Called Otto, it's like, you don't want me to see this, I guess. I mean, like, like, parents in the Midwest have to see something dignified every once in a while, and that movie was for them. But you're right. Like, I remember last. It was apparently well reviewed. Apparently well reviewed. Um, no, but also just, I've been enjoying interviews with Tom Hanks recently. I saw him, I think, talking with TCM about Casablanca or something. I mean, just, he's so sharp. So, like, mm-hmm. I would love to see him do something that, uh, uh, whimsical again. Yeah. Yeah. Also, that's not, I, that's not a new Toy Story, you know? I will say about like, Big, though, um, my, uh, Diablo Cody, uh, my friend, former Keep It guest, had one of my favorite tweets of all time, and I know I've said it on this show. She goes, you couldn't make the movie big today because every 30-year-old acts like that. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Speaking of Diablo, honestly, I think a Juno sequel would be good. I mean, I mean, I don't even know how we would tackle it now, given you know Elliot Page's new uh, identity. And mm. uh, that said, uh, Michael Sarah was on Celebrity Jeopardy recently. He's sharp as fuck. I'm sure he can still turn out the Michael Sarah gulps, you know, which we love from him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's the Elliot Page of it all, but you know, I think that I don't know. That story was so interesting to me. But you know, like uh, I fe- feel like politically, what happened after and how um, Diablo feels oh, yeah. about it, it right. would be yes. interesting to see that story now with them as like older parents, you right? Know? And honestly, incorporate, you know. Um, yeah, of course. Elliot's life into that would be great. the character. And that'd be so interesting to see, like, you know, maybe their relationships are strayed. Maybe they're not together. I just think that kind of story might be really interesting, especially now, you know, with so much of the, like, you know, um, trans debates in this country and around the world are sort of, like, going on the same with all of these abortion debates, which was a heavy thing that had to do with the original film, Juno, you know? Mm-hmm. And also, that would give another opportunity to Allison Janney, who belongs in my newfound Hall of Fame for third-build rom-com people, because in Six Days, Seven Nights, she's the one who's on the phone with whomever, Anne Heche, being like, you have to get the story, or whatever, then puts down the phone. I, I love that we hired people for that shit. It's so funny. <laughs> 
Uh, anyone else? That, anything else that you'd want to see? What's, what's a film that you think should be remade? Hmm. A, a movie. Well, I mean, when I hear that a movie should be remade, I'm thinking about a three-star movie where we appreciated quite a bit about it, but something is not quite right. Like, you know what? I, I mean, honestly, I don't love the series, but Fatal Attraction is the right kind of movie where mm. there's a lot going on for it that's unforgettable. There's a uh, tension to the movie that um, you, you're watching every second. It's like Black Swan or something. Like, Mm-hmm. You you have to just keep watching. Um, but the ending is problematic, as Glenn Close has talked about again and again, and that's the reason you would make uh, remake it as a miniseries, as they've done with uh, Lizzie Kaplan, who was on last week. Um, so I'm going to say something like that. I'm going to say Field of Dreams. Why? I would love to hear the version of this story where it turns out the Kevin Costner character is just crazy. <laughs> He's not following his whimsy. He's just out of control and obsessed with building a baseball field for reasons that are sad. That I would like to see. Okay. Okay. Here's mine. Okay. It's a film from an iconic director. One of our best. Can Um, I get a year? Can I get a year? It is 1964. Marnie? Yes. I am the best. (laughs) Come on now. Well, that's why I love you. Who throws it down like Lewis? (laughs) Tippy's still here. <laughs> that is why I love Louis Vuitton, everyone. <laughs> um, no, and listen, they don't even need to be involved in it. I just think that it's one of Hitchcock's lesser films. Right. Um, the Yes, right. You know, right. The, the, the writing's all over the place. The misogyny is all over the place. The ending sort of really doesn't make any fucking sense. It's almost camp, but not camp enough. And I think that with the right director, you know, like, I don't know, if someone crazy like Al Motivar or like Todd Haynes, like, really wanted to remake this film. But, you know, someone who has those sensibilities, I think a Marnie remake um, by someone like, by either a homo or mm-hmm. a woman needs right. to make remake Marnie. You know, because like, Alfred Hitchcock with his shit with women was just like, there's no way that movie was ever going to turn out good. Right. Um, yeah, Alfred Hitchcock, the, the strange thing about him is it's it's just in a way crazy he isn't gay because like just his obsessions with like the certain roles of like glamorizing women in a certain way that was both sexualized but like aloof. It really was more like the women are fabulous more than they're sexy in those movies. You know what I mean? I think it was more about having, you know, like collecting women. Yes, correct, correct. Um, no, that's interesting. I just watched Rope re- last week for um, TCM. And- Rope would be an amazing. Re- I would love a remake of Rope too. I because I'm not. Um, I'm not precious about like remakes of older films, provided that you know the person remaking them and the people casting them aren't you know awful. Correct. You know? Also, the thing about Rope is there is one real problem with that movie and if you haven't seen it it's one of Hitchcock's shortest movies it's about 82 minutes based on the Leopold and Loeb murders these two guys who are snobs kill this guy for the sport of it and then they throw a dinner party with him buried in the table in the middle of the party just to see if they can do it and the problem with the movie is the the main killer John Dahl he is fabulous he's he's an Oscar nominated actor from a movie called The Corn is Green with Betty Davis the other guy Farley Granger who is gorgeous not a good actor so no. I think if we remade it and that character who is supposed to be uh, really hold the tension of the movie and f- he's freaking out the entire time about getting caught and mm-hmm. why did they do this and 
Um, he also seems to be the most sexually thrilled by the strangulation at the beginning of the movie. So there's mm. a lot of fascinating facets to that character that could have been uh, explored better by a better actor. So I would say that. I think a beautiful blend of like that movie with the sensibilities of like Scream. Because yeah. Billy, mm-hmm. Billy and Stu are basically correct. Yeah. Leopold and Lowell, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. exploring their like sexual tension with one another too. Um I know we ended up with Gone Girl, but, you know, like, remember when um, Gillian Flynn um, was supposed to reteam with Fincher and Ben Affleck to do Strangers on a Train? Oh, my God. Yeah, we never got that. Oh, my we God. We never got it. Mm. Another Farley Granger joint. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, but I'm going to find some way to blame HBO for this not happening. Um, okay. And because, we, you know, we're already mad at them for, you know, the whole, like, um, turning into Max this week Starting or whatever. Like today, yes. Today. Um, but do you remember that David Fincher had like two shows at HBO? One oh, he of them did. was like video um sing crazy, like his version of like Veep um and Entourage. And then he also had a series um Utopia. And these were, you know, I guess they were budget disagreements or whatever, but these were shows that there were writers' rooms for. They were written, they were created, and then they never happened. Oh, weird. Yeah. I thought David Fincher was one of those can't-miss people. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, Netflix shut down fucking Nancy Myers. Uh, I don't oh, know right. that she needed uh, $900 million or how much she was asking Excuse for one me. of her things. But <laughs> The Kitchen alone, you know. Nancy, <laughs> no, based on how much money Nancy wanted for that rom-com, I mean, did, were they inserting a kitchen island on the International Space Station? It makes no fucking sense. I want to know what's really going on with that budget. Okay, like, do we have some gambling problems, Nancy? <laughs> okay, are you being blackmailed? If right. you need help, just let some people know, okay? Right. People yeah. would gladly help you, but I'm like, th- this, is, this is giving pyramid scheme. No, right. I mean, first of all, how does William Sonoma not just fund her entire life? I just don't understand how that happens. <laughs> all right, when we're back, keep it. And we are back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis, what's going on? Mine is uh, really dumb. This is one of the dumber Keep It's. Um, <laughs> Mark Malkin, venerable reporter who now works for Variety. You probably know him as the spectacled E red carpet host. Yes, he's this... always asking somebody a gay question on the carpet, and I love him for it. Yes, right. And he's very direct about it. Yes, often <laughs> goes viral quite a bit. Um, I guess he was at some sort of function where Zoe Deschanel was promoting her new show, What Am I Eating?, which I guess demystifies food for people if you have questions about how food is made or how long it keeps or whatever it's one of these shows that gets into what's actually healthy for you so somebody asked Zoe Deschanel who by the way has never been a gangbusters interviewee and (laughs) they say what's your favorite food in LA and he posted this clip I I don't know he he took this video himself I don't know why he posted the clip but her response is so guffaw worthy she says is it tacos? Is it ramen? That's the thing about LA. There's so much food all over the city. I just can't, <laughs> can't believe it. I can't <laughs> believe how lame a response that is. Is it tacos? Is it ramen? By the way, I get the tacos. Is LA a ramen city? I also, not foremost, not like, oh, you must go and get the wet noodles in LA. Jesus. <laughs> 
I would put Korean barbecue well ahead of that. <laughs> I cannot stop <laughs> this video. Is he trying to take her down? Is it wrong? <laughs> to be now bewildered giving... and mystified by multiple foods in a city. Oh my God, it's so funny. Because <laughs> now I it's can't... giving the show she's hosting on Max, which is called What Am I Eating? Uh, which dropped today, actually. Um, it's giving, well, let's just find someone affable to host this. I guess. Because she doesn't seem like she gives a fuck about food. <laughs> also, my thing about her is, is she kind of a Gwyneth where she got sick of acting? She just would prefer not to do it anymore? Because I feel she's still, this is somebody who looks identical to when we discovered her, whatever, a million years ago in Elf. You would think she would just be acting all the time, but you get it very sparingly from her. Because she had that Hello Giggles site for a while, so it's like she became interested in these other enterprises. Plus, she's dating a property brother, and they both, to me, look like they're trying to be Don Trump Jr., just physically. And I don't think they want to be that, but when you wear those flannels and you have that scruff, <laughs> you're asking for it. Uh, yeah, I think that if she wanted to act more, she would act more. I mean, I don't think you do Trolls and Trolls World Tour to get that coin. Right. Um, unless you are really, like she did Harold on the Purple Crayon, which comes out next year. I like, I don't, I don't think her heart's in it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Emily Deschanel, call in and explain it to us. I know you've got that Bones money and you're sitting on it and you have time. Bones, that was really one of our great shows. And what was it? I'll never know. <laughs> Sometimes but I just also, say the words Dr. Temperance Brennan <laughs> because slay, just those words. Are they rich too? Because yes. like, yeah, 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 I think they where's, are. Where's Emily? No, that's she what I'm saying. She ain't working either. Well, Devil in Ohio, she did this weird-ass, awful Netflix show last year. But yeah, wow. It's weird that they were just so omnipresent in like the 2010s. Yeah. And now they're completely just like, who thinks about the Deschanel's? Right. No, they're like the state school Farmigas. You know what I mean? Vera, Vera and Thaisa, <laughs> they're up at Juilliard or whatever. These girls are relatable. You want to see Where them Where are the Maras? Yeah. Where are the Mars at? <laughs> are, are Mars, they're, they're the weirdos, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're off at Oberlin, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> also, we had Kay here last year. Still a sleigh in that a teacher show. She did a great job. Yeah. Uh, Ira, what is your keep it this week? My keep it this week goes to the notion that anyone ever thought that we needed Christine on Selling Sunset. Mm. Now, Selling Sunset obviously is a show about um, blonde women who hate each other um, and date their boss uh, and sometimes sell houses Correct. in Los Angeles. Uh, now they are selling them everywhere. Like there's, there's scenes on the beach um, this season. You know, they're just, they're selling LA basically, you know, but the Oppenheim group office is on sunset. Um, I was worried about Christine not being on the show a little bit until last season when Christine basically she Heidi and Spencer herself, you know, like when you, when you go, you burn too bright and then everyone hates you on the show and no one wants to film with you. Like then you're not a useful cast member anymore, you know? Yeah. And everyone keeps saying, you know, she left selling sunset to, you know, become like a socialite, like a, a fashion model. She's getting on these spreads. I'm like, I haven't seen one in a minute. So we'll see about that. Um, but she's rich. So who cares? Uh, this season, however, is so good. The, the girls are carrying the girls to borrow a phrase that I know annoys you online, Lewis. Uh, 
The girls are clocked in. Oh, I, you know what? I can get into some clocking okay. in. I, I myself have seen clips of Chrishell on the show, and mm-hmm. all right, I'm getting it. Like this person is like owning screen time and um, reading people the fill, like like throwing the book at people, if you will. <laughs> uh, I of course am friends with Chrishell, um, IRL, um, and she's been on the podcast. But I would say that she used to be a person who was more of a um, shrinking away from conflict on the show. This season, she's come out swinging. And so mm. when you say clocked in, she is clocked in. She's uh, clocking people. Yes. Yeah, she's clocking people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Haymaker's coming from Chriselle. Call up Spike Lee because uh, these ladies are clockers. <laughs> call up Tony Collette because we are clock watchers. <laughs> um, the show is really fun this season. And I think that now that Christine is not, you know, this big, you know, cloud hanging over everybody, people are having a bit more fun. Uh, people are getting mixing it up a bit more. Um, some people are very annoying. Uh, there's this new girl, Nicole, um, who allegedly has been a part of the Oppenheim group for eight years. Excited. I've never seen her before. It's giving Nikki and Paolo from Lost. <laughs> a season six edition, <laughs> a cousin Oliver. She has longstanding beef with like Chris Shell, and she dated Jason, one of the bald Tweedledee Tweedledubs who run the Oppenheim group. Um, but I have never seen this woman before. I'm like, who are you? Wow. It's very, it is very weird to integrate someone into a reality show like that. Um, when normally that would happen, like cousin Oliver joining um, the Brady Bunch or something, you know. Right. Um, uh, and then there is this woman Bree who is completely ridiculous, and I need to let you know is spending a lot of time talking about her open relationship with her man. Um, and one of the women on the show, Chelsea, hates this open relationship. And at first, I thought she was going a little bit too hard for monogamy until I found out that Bree's open relationship and the man that she had her baby with is Nick Cannon. Excuse me. One of Nick Cannon's baby mamas is one of the new women on Selling Sunset this year. And I'm like, oh, well, girl, you're crazy. Well, also, statistically, one of the baby mamas will appear on Selling Sunset. Just, I mean, like, if you're doing a census of L.A., like, a few of them will show up. Uh, One in eight women in L.A. has a child with Nick Cannon. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wait, so is his name not mentioned on the show? It's mentioned. It just just took a minute, and I maybe, like, drowned it out before I heard it. And I'm like, that's a gag. And then... Another woman, uh, another one of his baby mamas is announced as having a baby in the news, like, during the course of the show. So, Oh, my God. Anyway, this okay. season is great. And I say, we did it, not need Christine at all. All right. Uh, you know what? I think for the Chriselle content alone, I will actually have to watch this. You know? <laughs> she, Non-competitive she, reality TV rarely sits well with me, but this I can make time for. I mean, listen, you just gotta, you just gotta hold in long enough for her to ask someone if they're a crackhead on the show. <laughs> Remember when you would just call somebody a crackhead? I guess you can't really do that anymore. It's it's kind of a thrilling phrase. I love it. But me personally, I make way too much money to ever do crack. Crack is cheap. (laughs) (laughs) See, crack is whack. Oh, Whitney. Why why did she get to be funny in addition to all these other things? Like Donna Summer, never really funny. Whitney, hilarious. Do you know, Diane? Do you really know? (laughs) The tilting head. Well, I guess that would be me. I think we are due for a Frost Nixon, but about that Whitney Diane interview. 
I would absolutely love it. I think that will actually happen. I do not think that is a pie in the sky idea. Because Diane Sawyer's moment, I think, is uh, her come to Jesus moment is still to come. She hasn't exactly, she's had a couple of dubious interviews over the years that I think are worth re examining, worth her re examining. Yeah. Not to besmirch uh, uh, the world of Diane Sawyer because, of, of course, she was married to Mike Nichols. Mm, yes. It all comes back to Mike. Right. Eventually, we're just going to have to do an all Mike Nichols episode. Okay, I but... do not hate that at all. I'll even watch Catch-22 for it. <laughs> all right. Thank you again to Aisha Tyler for joining us this week. Um, and we are dark next week for Memorial Day. So I hope you enjoy your holidays. I hope you watch the Ben Affleck movie, Memorial Day. That's what he oh. made, right? Is that real? Okay. No, it's not real. <laughs> all right. Um, we'll see you in June when we'll be busting out all over like... Leslie Uggams. We'll be full of pride. Oh, yeah. That, oh, no. Not another one of those. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us at Cricket Media on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. Plus, if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is filmed in front of a live studio audience.